I've never seen people in such distress. I've never seen the country collectively in such distress and real fear about what is to come. The Egyptians have always been very proud. It comes back again to this Omidunya internalization amongst them that they are different from other nations. Welcome to Babel, translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine 15 months ago, Egypt's economy has been under renewed stress and the government has been seeking outside help. Months of negotiations with the International Monetary Fund led to a much smaller loan than most Egyptians were expecting, and the Gulf states have not stepped in to help relieve Egypt's economic pressures. Are conditions in Egypt building up to an inflection point? And what would that mean for the Middle East and the rest of the world? To help us understand, I speak with Hafsa Halawa, an independent consultant and a non-resident scholar at Washington's Middle East Institute. Hafsa is the author of a new paper entitled Gulf Investment in Egypt, A Balance of Mutual Need. Later, I continue the conversation with my colleagues Will Todman and Lubna Youssef, discussing shifting Gulf Egypt dynamics and U.S. views on how to manage Egypt's growing crisis. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Hafsa, welcome to Babel. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Why do Gulf states care about Egypt? It's a difficult question to answer at the moment, considering the level of frustration on all sides. But ultimately, Egypt is the most populous Arab nation and strategically located, bridging Africa and the Middle East, Suez Canal, Mediterranean Red Sea access, and of course, has a historic role to play in the region. Its successive regimes and leaderships have been able to exert massive power and control over the trajectory of the wider Middle East and North Africa. When Mohamed Morsi was president of Egypt, the Gulf states were concerned when Abdel Fattah Sisi became Egypt's leader, later its president. They were very encouraged. You talked about in your paper how the Gulf states dispersed about $100 billion to Egypt after Sisi took power. And you talked about how the Gulf states felt that Egypt wasted the breathing space that aid produced. Give us a sense of context. Is $100 billion in the case of Egypt a lot of money? In the case of the Gulf states, does that represent a lot of money? I should caveat those are an assortment of both concrete figures, but also speculation over a number of other investments and loans and financial injections that were given to the country over the past 10 years. It's a massive amount of money, of course. In terms of not utilizing the breathing space, President Sisi not only reinforced very bad economic practices that were a holdover of the Mubarak regime, and some might say even go further back than that, he has used that money to invest heavily in state infrastructure projects, siphoning off a lot of that money through state contracts to military companies and Egyptian construction companies, which has been a major part of what has kept the macroeconomic growth numbers 
on a level which has pleased the international community, international finance institutions, and really delayed the panic that is now setting in this community towards Egypt and its fiscal planning. And he did not change with any great measure Egypt's economy, whilst there was a massive IMF deal that was signed in November 2016, of which at the core was lifting of subsidies, a lot of people forget that the second and third branches of those agreements was to reform a number of state institutions, notably the Egyptian gas and petroleum companies that manage Egypt's natural resources. That was to open up the sectors to privatization. That was in principle to allow for a thriving private sector in the country. And what President Sisi ultimately did was stifle private sector investment even further, not just by not introducing the kind of reforms that the IMF and other partners wanted to see, but also by enriching and empowering the military through a web of military companies. Part of the reason that the military has been empowered is a series over the last decade of legislative reforms that have really entrenched the power and the ability of these military companies to receive state tenders, to receive state funds. This is an institution that does establish a paper trail. There's always laws or amendments or decrees that link us to how they're able to access both funds, but also contracts, everything from land appropriation through legislative reform. There is certainly a trackable paper trail to explain how the military has been able to become such a large part of Egypt's economy. You have described the UAE and Saudi Arabia almost as if they're aligned. Do they have differences when it comes to their history with the Egyptian leadership, their approach to the Egyptian leadership, their sense of the role of military institutions in the economy? Are they shoulder to shoulder or are there differences between these two large donors? What we are seeing, and this is a real shift from decades of Gulf aid, is a massive shift from aid to investment. There is now a clear desire across the three major Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, UAE and Qatar, to see return on investment. That has created a unified, crafted position together as one body of Gulf states, but really each state is seeking its own interests, whether it be through what kind of investments they want to be part of inside Egypt, or in terms of what they view as a political versus economic relationship, where we see the UAE continuing to work very much on the political and economic side by side, and Saudi Arabia, for example, really dividing the two and siloing them off, and the political being a very separate discussion to the economic question for them. When it comes to the negotiations over the terms of investment, I was corresponding with a banker this morning who said it's almost as if Sisi is playing a game of chicken with Mohammed bin Salman over who's going to bend on some of these conditions. Does that sound accurate to you? Absolutely. I think we're in a real, it's almost an identity crisis, I think I could call it, for the Egyptian regime writ large. This is not just about President Sisi. This decades-long, if not centuries-old idiom of umid dunya, as we say in Egypt. The mother of the world. The mother of the world. But primarily rooted in it is that Egypt is too big to fail. 
This is not something new. It's batted around a lot these days because it's a new term that we use to associate with Egypt in the last sort of 10, 12 years, particularly since the uprising that led to the fall of Hosni Mubarak in 2011. But in reality, this is something that is very internalized and much a part of it, not only the regime's identity, the military institution's identity, but Egyptian culture and identity itself. What we're seeing really is that being tested to its absolute limits. There is still an inherent belief in this regime that Egypt is too big to fail and that the Gulf states will come to their aid. The question really is, will they? And my conclusions in the paper is that there is a moment where Egypt, to an extent, is too big to fail. I don't see massive rescue packages and bailouts from the Gulf. I think that is over. But I do see a sort of watershed moment, probably later this year, where the Egyptian regime will have to concede significantly and the Gulf states will come in with the bare minimum, according to those concessions, because they no longer have the patience with the regime without major significant reform. The problem now is that the can has been kicked down the road for the Egyptians themselves. They've done this. The regime has done this for so many years that the kind of reforms that the IMF and the Gulf states are pushing for will be so painful for Egyptians that arguably it brings into question issues of legitimacy, political survival and so forth. That's not to say that you know, this regime's political survival is contingent on economic security, but it is to say that it creates major fissures and problems vis-a-vis -vis the civilian military relationship that we've seen over the last decade really weld itself under President Sisi. I've just come from Cairo two, three weeks ago. I go back in and out every six or so weeks. My family, my friends, everyone is there. The reality is, and I don't think that's lost on the regime, despite the defiance in the face of these challenges and the response to them, is that there is major anger across the country. When you own the country and you own the solutions, you end up by consequence owning the problems. And it is very difficult now to find anybody in Egypt with a lot of patience and a lot of will to give this regime time to fix certain issues and mistakes that have been made in economic planning. And that's a bigger calculation for leaders in Cairo than it is maybe for leaders in the Gulf states. You've been going back and forth to Egypt for your entire life, and you went right after the revolution 2011 to participate. You've seen Egypt under stress. You've seen the sort of small protests that turned to large protests. My own sense is that there is anger, but there haven't been demonstrations. There's not organization. And many Egyptians feel that the actions of 2011 didn't move the country forward. It put the country backward. How does that affect the calculations of the current Egyptian leadership? How does it affect the calculations of the Gulf leaders? How does it affect the calculations of Egyptians as they think about this moment of crisis? No one can predict mobilization. I think one of the major things that has shifted the course and trajectory of relationships with Egypt is how much of a surprise 2011 was in terms of the mobilization and the quick escalation, not just in size, but then also action to remove Hosni Mubarak from power. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's on the cards. I actually 
have much deeper fears for Egypt right now, not just for my own friends and family and my community, but for the country at large. I've never seen people in such distress. I've never seen the country collectively in such distress and real fear about what is to come. The Egyptians have always been very proud. It comes back again to this Omidunya internalization amongst them that they are different from other nations. Some people call it arrogance, some people call it exceptionalism, but it is a very Egyptian thing that we're Egyptian, we're not susceptible to the kind of risks that create a crisis in Iraq. We're not the same. At a moment of inflection, which could have descended us into civil war, we're not Syria, we're not Libya. All of these things have been churned out by politicians and leaders over the decades, that it's a very internalized thing for Egyptians. And I think people have looked now more deeply at the crises that have unfolded economically in countries like Turkey, like Lebanon, and they're really, really afraid. That's not to say that there cannot be triggers of change. We're already seeing the formation of the civilian democratic movement and a much more vocal political opposition. Five, six years ago, this was not part of the social, cultural, political space in the country. And now these personalities, despite not being on television for various reasons, notably that the security apparatus doesn't allow them, they are finding ways to communicate with the people. And the people are simply saying one thing to everybody. There's only one thing people care about, fix the economy. I have girlfriends who are mothers, educated, some are in work, some are not in work. Our WhatsApp group is normally gifts and memes and jokes and social media chatter and gossip about what's happening in the country. And now on an almost daily basis, it's discussion about the price of the US dollar on the black market every single day, or it's about the price of how much coffee costs at their local cafe. We don't go out as much for dinner because it's too expensive. It's all anyone can talk about. What I'm so struck by when I'm in Egypt is how much this is affecting everyone from the poorest Egyptians to the most elite. Obviously, the elite have an opportunity because of their mass wealth to absorb a lot of these changes and can sustain themselves no matter the crisis, much as they have done in Lebanon through that massive financial crisis. But it really is affecting everyone and it's all anybody can talk about. I think the biggest message that is becoming very clear inside Egypt and that the Gulf states are very cognizant of themselves is things are only going to get worse. What I'm struck by is the lack of urgency that seems to be coming in terms of messaging from the government and from the leaders within the presidency and around it. To have a government that is becoming so disconnected to its people is majorly concerning. You live in Dubai where you see Arabs from all over the world, Gulf Arabs, Egyptians, Iraqis, Lebanese, Palestinians. What is the mood about Egypt? What's the regional sense of Egypt? Is there a sense that this is a precarious moment or is there a sense of Egyptians have always had their thing, this is just their thing, whatever? What I'm really struck by is the level of concern from everyone, officials, non-officials, 
Emiratis and other Gulf nationals who I'm friends with here. And of course, Arabs from all over the region who are here. There's just constant questions about what's happening in Egypt. I think one of the biggest misconceptions post uprisings, or shall we say the failed transitions to democracy, for lack of a better phrase, is this idea that suddenly everybody went back home and stopped reading the news and stopped caring and stopped engaging in politics or economic issues or social issues across the region writ large. That's not true. I think people are more engaged than ever and people are more interconnected than ever. Dubai is a great example of that, where people from all over the region are building lives, supporting their families back home. I have Egyptian friends here and there's constant chatter on WhatsApp of like, okay, I need to send X amount of money. How do I buy Egyptian pounds? Who's going to buy my dollars? And it's all kind of black market stuff. But across the people that I know, all ages, very different portfolios, careers, and lives is this looming question of 108 million people. What does that even look like? All our countries have been through massive economic shocks. I'm half Iraqi. We don't need to get into the last 20 years and what that's done to Iraq. Palestinians, Syrians, Lebanese, Jordanians, we all compare and contrast our contexts. And then there's that lingering moment where everyone kind of goes, 100 million people. What does that even look like? And I think that's across the region, what's triggering so much concern, despite the tone from the leaderships of the Gulf states, they are incredibly concerned because it is such a large country, because it is such a strategically located country. It's a major security question now, the economic issue in Egypt. And just because there are major conditions now being placed on the Egyptian regime in order to receive Gulf support does not diminish the level of concern that is being mirrored in Egypt and outside Egypt. As you see the region focusing on Egypt, do you see the world focusing on Egypt as something that could destabilize the Middle East or create enough problems, Egypt being big enough to create problems to destabilize other parts of the world? Absolutely. To be fair to the Omidunya principle, what happens in Egypt rarely stays inside Egypt, be it political or social shocks or otherwise. It is a country that does affect its neighborhood greatly, both positively and negatively in its trajectory. And I certainly get the sense from the European nations, member states, the EU, Britain, that they're very, very concerned. But there's also a little bit of probably similar to discussions they have on Tunisia, which is a little bit of head banging against a wall because there are and have been in place for many, many years since I would say 2015, 16 guidelines on what Egypt needs to do. And it's very clear and it's seeped in so much so that you go and buy fruit off the street in Egypt and they'll talk about the pegging of the pound and the capital controls and the issues with subsidies and so on and so forth. It's been so regularly discussed that from the very top levels of the corridors of Brussels or Paris or Berlin, all the way through and down to the fruit sellers on the streets of Cairo, everybody kind of knows what's wrong. It's not the case that arguments about COVID and the Ukraine war beyond a wheat crisis kind of really 
cut through very much, certainly no longer now. I think the bigger question in terms of the international response is what can they do? Because they can't bail Egypt out and they won't. These are countries that are very transparent with their citizens. This is taxpayers' money across the board. And they certainly, with their own crises, particularly energy crises and others, don't have the opportunity to do it themselves. My fear, if I can be frank, is questions and fears of migration, particularly with the outbreak of conflict in Sudan between the military and the RSF, the paramilitary forces, will accelerate desire to support Egypt on a part of the Europeans, either because Egypt will insert itself and say, you know, if you want us to keep people on this continent, you have to pay up, which they've done in the past. It's not a new tactic for them. But also because coupled with conflict in the region, you have this question of 100 million plus people in the country. The IMF has been very clear They're now two months delayed in their review, which seems to imply that they don't really know how to give Egypt its second tranche of financing because Egypt hasn't stuck to any of the conditions it initially proposed. And the IMF were quite strong in January by saying you must commit to these conditions or else. Beyond that, we're still talking about $17, $18 billion that was assumed would come from the Gulf states. Where the American government sits and what the American government's position on this is rather unclear, primarily because we've had rather incoherent policy from Washington towards Egypt and the wider region under this administration. And that is creating a real sense of insecurity, I think, that you don't have a unified international community on this issue and how to solve it except the trudged out line, which is the IMF, the IMF, the IMF. And of course, on a wider geopolitical map, we have issues between the Gulf states and the United States and Europe versus the great power competition, as you spoke of, Russia and China on the other side, and those kinds of security questions that are creating at least the air of a United States that isn't very present, if not visible. So let me ask an unfair question. Deep in your gut, do you think that Egypt is going to be able to muddle through this? Or do you think we are likely headed to some sort of moment of inflection, positive or negative, that shifts the nature of the Egyptian economy and changes the way the world relates to Egypt? Let me put it this way. If there is no acknowledgement that we have already reached that inflection point, and we need massive course correction economically, I am really, really scared about what comes next. And I don't necessarily mean the big macro question of will Egypt default or not. Egypt doesn't have to default on its debt, that's my belief, to really spiral towards economic collapse. My fear really is that this regime is not, either is not taking the situation very seriously, or because of this idea that it's too big to fail, simply feels that it will never need to. That's very much a foreign policy position that was taken by this leadership vis-a-vis its relationships across the region and around the neighborhood. And now it's becoming part of the domestic economic and political calculations. And that's very dangerous. And I greatly worry about what is to come because it's going to be a cataclysmic shock 
whatever we've already seen, whatever Egyptians have already been forced to absorb as citizens, rich or poor, we're now reaching a point where something really has to change. And actually, my biggest fear is that nothing does, because the international community seems to be very willing to continue to give Egypt a lot of rope to refinance its debt and meet its payments. And that's really dangerous because it simply continues to kick the can down the road on a macro level, whilst forcing Egyptians to absorb absolutely astronomical inflation. The government is now subsidizing fuel at a rate, some would argue, more than it was before the first IMF deal in 2016, of which any major removal of that would cause mass hyperinflation, Turkey style. And we're in a position where you do have major investors, domestic investors, reconsidering their portfolios inside the country. You have the Gulf states snubbing at the offerings that are being provided by the Egyptians, primarily because it's not real state divestment, but also because it's simply sectors that do not interest them at all. And you have a regime that is accelerating its domestic infrastructure program to the point of almost ridiculousness in terms of the highways and roads across and around Cairo and other major urban centers through domestic expenditure in some kind of drive for electoral campaigning and a legitimate presidential win for the president next year, which seems incredibly divorced from reality on the ground. And at the moment, everything seems to be moving in parallel towards a really hard, horrible inflection point. At some point, you have to start looking through the windows and the glass and see that this is all interconnected and the regime really has to act. The unfortunate position for Egyptians, and I would even argue for Egypt's allies who want to see it succeed and want to see it change course, is that that is a decision that is in the hands of its leaders in the country and they have made no real, material and meaningful sign that they understand the gravity of the situation and that they're willing to really respond to it. Hafsa thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure. Okay, welcome back, John, Will. I feel like Hafsa gave us so much to unpack. She mentioned how the UAE and Saudi Arabia have very different approaches to the Egyptian file. One of them combines the political and economic file, while the other one prefers to separate the files altogether. That made me think about another player in the region, the United States. Hafsa described the policy of the U.S. towards Egypt as incoherent. But I'm intrigued to hear what your thoughts are about how you see the U.S. thinking about Egypt. Still not very much. There was a time when U.S. policy toward the Middle East pivoted on Egypt, and Egypt was a vital partner. Egypt is considered to be, realistically, a second or third-rate concern of the United States in a region that has ongoing civil wars where you have major oil producers, where you have major security issues going on and terrorist financing issues. Egypt doesn't offer much upside. There's not a sense right now that Egypt presents a profound downside. 
And realistically, I don't think the Egyptians have adapted to a world where they're not really one of the principal concerns of the United States in the region. There is a sense in Egypt of the Omadunya complex that we are the mother of the world. We have to be central and important. I don't think they're as central and important to the United States as they've been, and they sort of don't know what to do about it. But it is clear to me that for other countries in the Middle East, they see the importance of Egypt, but in a context where the United States is ambivalent about the importance of the Middle East more broadly, the importance of Egypt then goes down in proportion. There's a growing tension between how Congress views Egypt and how the White House views Egypt as well. And for a while now, voices on the Hill have grown increasingly critical about Egypt's human rights record, its relations with Russia. It was in 2017, Egypt allowed Russian forces to use Western Egypt as a base for its operations in Libya. And the idea that Egypt has been the largest recipient of U.S. aid. Next to Israel. Next to Israel, yes. What has it achieved when the human rights situation is deteriorating, when the economic situation is clearly deteriorating, and when Egypt is cozying up to U.S. competitors? And we've seen some of this play out in terms of the debates over funding and withholding a degree of aid. But it's difficult for President Biden because ultimately Egypt is important in some ways. It was four months after Biden took office until he had a phone call with President Sisi. But when that happened was when there was a conflict or an escalation between Hamas in Gaza and Israel. And President Biden needed to speak to Sisi to try and negotiate an end to that. So Egypt does still play a role, but it's difficult for these people on the Hill who say, look at what we have provided. What have we got? Not very much. I was born and raised in Libya. And so Egypt has always been a huge part of my life. I have family there. I have friends there. And we also believe in the Umid Dunya concept that Egypt is central to our broader stability. When the 2011 Arab Spring happened, we were encouraged by what we saw in Egypt. Over the last decade, whatever happens in Egypt in terms of any political transitions or counter-revolutions means so much to what happens in Libya. While Hafsa was speaking, I found myself agreeing with not just the Umid Dunya narrative, but the fear that all of us have about what is going to happen if the situation in Egypt reaches a tipping point. What would the consequences of letting Egypt fail economically look like? It's not clear what failure looks like. I can imagine a number of scenarios, whether it's an abject failure, whether it's a sustained depression. Certainly the IMF's hope is that looking at the alternatives, even recalcitrant elements of the military who want to maintain military privileges and the military role in the economy will decide there is no alternative. There's certainly not a better alternative than to accept the kinds of rigorous conditions the IMF is imposing. The challenge is you partly have the tipping point collapse scenario 
but you can have the gradual immiseration of Egypt scenario, which has challenges for the region. It's almost like the frog in the boiling pot of water, that Egypt just becomes a generator of problems for neighboring states, a lot of expatriate Egyptian workers in Libya and in other countries throughout the region. Does that become a problem? Do you have a push of Egyptians toward Europe? Do you have the return of radicalization in Egypt or among Egyptian expatriate populations? I'm probably more worried about that scenario. Does a slowly sinking Egypt mean the whole region is taking on water? You could potentially have a slowly sinking Egypt at a time when the Gulf actually has rising income as the Gulf has a rising share of global energy production as part of the energy transition. And what does that look like if the tectonic plates really shift and you have a Levant that feels like it's drifting downward and a Gulf drifting upward? Does that create any unusual tensions? That's probably a more likely scenario. It's a dangerous scenario. I am hopeful that the concern in Egypt, it prompts the kinds of policy responses that frankly, the business community in Egypt has been looking for for quite a long time. But nobody, including the business community, has a lot of confidence. It's possible, but it's not a sure thing. It makes me think of Lebanon. We have done work in the program on Lebanon and have tried to work out what would an inflection point look like. One of them seems like it would be the complete inability of the state to pay the army's wages and then the collapse of internal security. But Lebanon has sunk a massive amount without getting to that stage yet. I fear that this might be just a slow collapse that doesn't have one of these turning points and that things just get worse and worse and worse. And then how do you build back from that when you have hollowed out the middle class completely, when so many people are struggling, when you've probably lost a huge amount of your most talented citizens to brain drain? And in a scenario like that, to me, what seems like might trigger some kind of real international action is any kind of instability around the Suez Canal. But are we likely to see people trying to leave from the northern coast of Egypt to Europe? I'm not sure that that's what we're going to see. We're just going to see an enormous amount of suffering and a gradual deterioration of conditions. And maybe what it needs is some kind of turning point, some kind of moment that, that could kick the government into, into action and prompt some of these reforms that we all know are, are needed. It does strike me that Egypt's problems are very different from Lebanon's problems. The structure of governance in Egypt and Lebanon are very different. Egypt will be its own trajectory, but it's a trajectory of a country with more than 100 million people that is networked entirely into the rest of the Middle East and networked into Europe and other places. It's hard for me to imagine that major moves in Egypt don't reverberate throughout the region, just as major moves in Egypt in 2011 inspired everybody. There's a way in which what was different about the protests in Egypt in 2011 versus anywhere else is everybody knew Egyptians. There's an immediacy to Egypt that everybody in the Middle East feels. And if Egypt goes in a seriously bad direction, everybody understands 
that that will affect them. At the same time, the Gulf states are committed to not letting the same foolishness go on and on and on. I agree with your points about Egypt being its own trajectory. While we might still be waiting for that inflection point, I was speaking to an Egyptian friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and she was telling me that her concern is that the country is losing talent. Does your friend live in Egypt or outside of Egypt? She left Egypt just a few weeks ago. And she's a lawyer with a master's degree from the UK, and she's worked with the Red Cross. She was telling me that Lubna, our generation, are now all leaving because it has become increasingly hard for them to make ends meet. And the Washington Post had a big story about how many doctors are leaving yeah. the country, including a former intern in our program, superb, now working for McKinsey. But he felt he had to flee Egypt. So you have a trained doctor, very talented, got a graduate degree here, works for McKinsey, and he's not back in Egypt. And where are they going? The Gulf. So many of her family and her friends, including her husband at one point, were working in the Gulf, even though costs of living there are also very high. And the challenge is going to be as the Gulf looks at the energy transition and tries to have um, more nationals in the workforce and fewer foreign workers, it is going to be increasingly difficult to use the Gulf as a pressure valve over the next 5, 10, 15 years. This leads me to our last question of the day. One of the things Hafsa spoke about is how the Gulf is shifting their approach to Egypt by moving away from aid to investment. What does that mean in terms of the Gulf's influence in the region? Investors want a return on their investments, right? So presumably the Gulf is going to be far more selective in terms of the types of projects they support, projects that they view as being economically viable and productive not just for Egypt, but for the broader region. And that's a real change. Anyone who really doubts the fact that we're in a, a kind of new phase in the Gulf hasn't been paying attention over the last few weeks. Look at what Saudi Arabia has done in Yemen, normalizing with Iran, in approaching normalization with Syria and helping usher Syria back into the Arab League against Egyptian resistance. This is a really different time, and everything that I heard from Hafsa was saying that the Egyptian government have just not realized quite how differently these Gulf states are acting. And the other piece of this, which we're not quite attuned to yet, but probably should be, is the Gulf has very large social support programs. And the fact is the rest of the Middle East has a tradition of very large social support programs. It is not clear to me that the Gulf's greater investment in the Levant, North Africa, is not going to lead to the erosion of some of the social support programs. We may, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, see the divide between rich and poor actually grow even larger. What does that mean in some of these populous countries if there is perceived to be a very small elite that benefits tremendously? a large number of people who don't benefit, does that dislocation and the erosion of social support, the erosion of government jobs, the introduction of more orthodox economics without the social safety net, what does that mean for the stability of the region going forward? I would worry that as we move toward more of this orthodoxy and try to get away from the failed Arab socialist experiments that hang on from the 60s, 
that we don't have modern social safety net that makes people feel they're all part of a single society. To me, that's not a reason not to introduce economic reform, but it's a reason to ensure that there's seriousness about strengthening the social safety net simultaneous with economic reform. Thank you both for an incredibly insightful conversation. Thanks, Thank you, Lovna. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.